0: Welcome to The Moon In Your Mind with your hosts, Chelsea Winter and Alyssa Ray. We are on a mission to build a community of empowered individuals to stay curious in their work, their relationships, and daily lives.
1: By interviewing experts in Uniting Astrology and Psychology, we will hold the space to connect you to new wisdom, unique stories, and insightful resources for you to cultivate your best human experience. Let's get curious. You guys, we are so excited to share with you our newest offering, the Cosmic Consulting Program. We're combining Chelsea's wisdom of astrology and my background in somatic psychology to support you in finding more authentic alignment and embodiment in your life. As your Cosmic Consultants, we will provide you with a juicy natal chart reading, a consultation session with both Chelsea and myself, as well as a nourishing somatic coaching session with me. And if you want to go even deeper, we're offering two add-ons that you can choose from a personalized journal or a personalized meditation crafted by Chelsea and myself based on your chart consultation and coaching session to continue diving deeper into the work, or you can choose both ready to begin. Shoot me an email at Alyssa at the moon and we'll schedule a consult. We can't wait to support you on your journey. Hi, everyone. We are really excited to have Michelle from My Vinyasa Practice on today's episode. Michelle is a yoga therapist and educator who founded My Vinyasa Practice in 2016. She's been teaching for almost 20 years and practicing yoga and meditation for longer. She has three beautiful children and a supportive partner who all play a role in the MVP community. Her main motivation is to create opportunities for jobs in the yoga industry where people can deepen their practice and transform their lives. Welcome, Michelle, thanks for coming
0: on. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. So we start every episode with a mini like astrology reading. We'll just kind of talk about your sun moon rising and so i'll kind of I'll go through it and you can tell me what resonates, what doesn't resonate and then we well, you know we'll want to hear about how it has shown up in your life uh growing up does that sound good? Yeah, sounds great. Do you know anything about your astrology
2: yeah i I know a little bit yeah.
0: Okay, awesome. So you're a Capricorn Sun, a Virgo Moon, and a Sagittarius Rising. So this means you are really dedicated to exploring and improving yourself and then turning around and using that knowledge to really help others be the best they can be. And Capricorn shows up, you know, very a self starter, very motivated. You know, the mountain goat, they can traverse anything, there's no obstacle to stop you you know, sometimes too, you might need space or solitude to really go inward. And that's where you can really spend time to think about next steps, you know, also like very organized and you have Virgo moon too. So a lot of this, like the organization comes in a lot with Virgo. So are you very organized? (laughs) Well, I, I have
2: gotten organized over the years, but I definitely feel like it resonates with me and my personality. I've always been very, like very Capricorn very definitely mm. capricorn forward and you know just really like looking at obstacles as opportunities relationships as opportunities for healing and growth so it really has been you know just throughout my entire life you know this very like dynamic relationship between observation and action right i can remember even as a child like really observing my environment and like Trying to like figure out objectively, like I didn't judge a lot of things. I I just objectively took it in and then, you know, sat with that and like created a belief system over time that was even different than, you know, my parents' belief systems or their parents' belief systems. So it was very authentic to me. Although I didn't realize that that's what it was at the time, but it definitely allowed me to see where there were inequities in the world. And those inequities were, you know, like what motivated me to move forward. And, and it's just been a theme ever since then, you know, the inequity in education or the inequity, you know, when it comes to, you know, women's rights or when it comes to pay for different groups of individuals, like all of these things. And then that sort of manifested when I got deep into the, the yoga community and I was like, okay. You know, this is such an important educational tool that people need and they need it much earlier than in their thirties. Like how can we create a, an industry where we are really teaching these teachers how to educate people on the mind body connection and their, you know, interceptive and proprioceptive awareness and, and, and how that's driving them to make decisions in their lives. And so, you know, it's been a long journey and sometimes, you know, I definitely want to roll over, but I feel like, you know, there's just such a, such a fire in me that just Mm -hmm. continues to, to move me forward.
0: Yeah. And I feel like that is such a beautiful marriage between like your Sagittarius rising and the Capricorn and Virgo side, you know, like Sagittarius is all about learning, all about teaching others, really looking at things with that non-judgmental, you know, third party observer point of view and really just saying like, okay, why do they believe in this? Why do they believe in this? And then let's put that together and what makes sense to me. And so I feel like the way you just described it, I mean, that is like so beautiful and a much better description than I could have ever given (laughs) from an astrology standpoint of how it shows up. That's, I love that. Yeah. And so you said growing up, you know, you were looking at like your parents' beliefs and your grandparents' beliefs, you know, what was it like growing up? Where, where did you grow up? What was your family dynamic? You know, tell us what that was all like. Well,
2: you know, it's interesting because I was raised by both traditionalist and boomers. My parents were like the earlier part of the boomer sort of demographic. And my grandparents were like smack dab in the middle of the traditionalist. My grandfather was a colonel in the air force. And so there was a certain standard and, you know, like sort of like expectation of like what you were supposed to be, you know, and what roles people played. My grandmother taught school her entire life. She taught for almost 50 years. So that teaching gene was already very ingrained in me. My mother was also a teacher, but my parents really operated like, you know, typical stereotypical Boomers, you know, and it's like it's funny now that people are referencing it so much. Both my parents died when I was in my teens. And, you know, their lifestyle was, you know, very chaotic. You know, they relied on on their parents a lot for, you know, support, even after my brother and I were born. So I'm watching the juxtaposition of like, you know, very, very well off, established, organized you know, contributors to society. That's the traditional way, you know? And then I'm looking at my parents that were so, you know, loving. My mother really showed me how to love unconditionally. And yet they were just sort of like fly by the seat of their pants. You know, they had been taken care of their whole life. And so they didn't really have an understanding or a sense of urgency about, you know, like doing their part for their for their own little commune, right? And so it was interesting because there was a lot of judgment between the two. You know, my my grandmother was very influential in my life. I spent every summer in Austin with her. I grew up in Marietta, Georgia. And again, it was just obvious. And And I knew I was privy to information that I maybe shouldn't have been privy to as a child. But I knew that my grandparents were really the ones taking care of us. And, you know, there was a lot of animosity about that from my grandmother. So when I would go to see her, there was a lot of projection. I didn't know what it was called then, but it was a lot of projection. And I just didn't buy into it. You know, I I would listen to it and I'd, you know, I'd want to defend my parents or I'd want to defend, you know, the life that I was living in because I had to live in that life. You know, but at the same time, I, I also knew that they, there was a disconnect in their awareness of what their responsibility was. And, and yet I didn't really judge them for it. You know, I grew up in the 80s and like many 80s children, you know, we were treated in a way that was, you know, a little bit neglectful even at times. And so as I worked through all of that and I processed, you know, what my upbringing really was. I I vowed to raise my children in what I call projection free parenting, and so we never told them they had to be in a sport. We never told them they had to do anything at all. Uh, whatever they wanted to explore, they could explore. They had to finish it. They had if they started something, they had to finish it. But that was it, you know. And so. It's, it's been really interesting. I've raised my family in a way that's very, you know, like it married the best of both worlds. It married the best parts and the most stable parts of my, my interaction with my grandparents. And then it married the, the most compassionate and loving parts of my parents and, and, and like innocent parts of my parents. And I think that that has given our children like a really, really different experience but it's also given them the opportunity to access authenticity much earlier than I was able to you know and and it's really spared you know some of the unnecessary traumas i mean there's traumas in everybody's life regardless of how you know wonderful your your raised or your home life is but you know for the most part it's been a pretty you know benign environment when it comes to those types of things so you know, I'm about to send my first son off to college. I oh, wow. so really? I can't even believe it. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, uh, and then I've got another one going off to college next year. And then I have two years with Alexis, but I really think my sign, my, um, the astrology, the way that the planets have, have acted in my life, you know, has enabled me to Raise my youngest. My youngest is trans and transitioned when she was in first grade. And like, we've never looked back. She's never had body dysmorphia. She's never had any problems in school. You know, it's just been really, really amazing. And I don't think that that would have happened if I didn't have a very unique combination of influences, you know, sort of underneath what is manifesting. So. That's
1: incredible. First of all, thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm sorry for your losses. You know, I'm, I'm sorry for the struggles. And it sounds like you have really been so resilient in finding your process within that and healing from your childhood and learning how to use that as a way to raise your children differently. Right. And so I'm wondering, you know, what were the tools and resources that you went to as you were kind of processing all of that and moving through it?
2: Well, you know, I started, I I looked into traditional therapy. I did a lot of traditional therapy from the time that I first got pregnant until probably about, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 years ago. And then I started getting into yoga therapy and more somatic work. One of the things that was really, really prevalent to me, and it actually is why I didn't go into traditional therapy, was that when I would go into a therapist's office, I would just keep saying the same things over and over and over. And it was almost like re-traumatizing, you know, like processing through my parents' death over and over and over again, or processing through the way my grandmother wanted me to be thinner over and over and over again. It was just like too much for me to, to keep doing that. I didn't feel like I was making headway. So I met my teacher at that time, she was my first teacher and like literally the love of my life. I have never loved anyone the way I love her. And I think it's because she saw me. She saw this enlightened being in this human experience. And she was able to hold what I felt like at the time was an unconditional container for me to explore without story. And that is really what yoga therapy does for you. You know, I spent you know two years working with her as a client, as a yoga therapy client. Then I ended up training, doing my initial training with her. And in that yoga therapy, and and that in that environment, you know, it was a lot of asking questions about yoga philosophy, how it related to my own faith and spirituality what was right, what was wrong, and teasing through the things that I already knew I learned how to trust myself in that situation, in that scenario. And so she taught me some really amazing tools. And then she also encouraged me to go out to the University of Santa Monica to learn some of the tools that she was using. That was a really transformative experience because the University of Santa Monica is a, it's like a coaching program. It's like a a school for coaching, spiritual coaching. And they have a master's program in spiritual psychology. And then they have an offshoot of that program called Loyalty to Your Soul. And that particular program is probably the best program I've ever been to. The founders of the school are Ron and Mary. And they... They're psychotherapists. And so they take it to a different level than I teach it. I don't teach it the same way because it's, it's, I I don't feel like I can contain it the way that they teach it, but they teach a process called compassionate self-forgiveness. And it's not unique to them. You know, I actually, when I wrote my first training, I, I talked to them a lot about it. And I was having some conflict within the yoga community about that first training that I wrote. And I wanted to make sure that I was like being completely transparent and like that everybody was on the same page. So I called USM and I talked to them and I said, Hey, I really want to bring some of this into this training. And they were like, well, we didn't create it. And the more people who get it, the better. So it's basically, you know, the principles of self-compassion put into sort of a, a cognitive behavioral therapy template. And used as skills practice, which I then took and turned into Svadhyaya, which is uh, one of the limbs, or it's one of the niyamas, which is a limb of the eight limb path of yoga. So I created this like guided practice really for people to work through their material. And then I studied with Richard Miller and I studied with Nushala Joy Devi and I studied with all these other people. And what I realized and I found over time was what we were doing in yoga therapy, what I was doing in yoga therapy that I didn't know I was doing was I was really recognizing the judgments that had become limiting beliefs. And ultimately those judgments are based on insecurities, my insecurities, right? My insecurities about the world, about my self-worth, you know, and then the more I got deep into it, the more I realized, oh, wait a second, there are really only five things that, you know, get to us when it comes to our self-worth. We're lacking or flawed, disconnected, incomplete, less than, or bound by time and space. I learned that through Richard Miller, who learned it from someone else, who learned it from someone else. You know, this is like this whole, you know, evolution that is really an involution of the soul. And so... Long story short, I use a lot of different tools as a yoga therapist. I use yoga nidra is one of the foundational tools. And that's actually one of the things that my teacher started using with me. Once I got to a place where I was ready for that, like to really heal, you know, she used it with me, I think three sessions. And that was like literally it. And it was enough to give me the perspective that I needed at the time to to take these other tools like compassionate self-forgiveness or Pradipaksha which is the comparison of opposites, or the kleshas, like using the kleshas. Those are the veils that prevent us from seeing the truth of who we are. And it gave me the space to, to learn how to use those tools to identify the judgments and the limiting beliefs that were really keeping me bound by you know a life I didn't want to lead and I used those tools to eradicate those limiting beliefs. And my real passion is teaching other people how to do it. Because when we start to do that and we start to look at everything through the lens of the sutras, like it doesn't matter what faith base you are, you can overlay it on top of anything. It will give you the space and the perspective to really see who you are and who everybody else is. And you start to recognize that your perception of the world is based on your limited lived experience and that that limited lived experience cannot possibly include everyone's lived experience. So now when somebody comes to me with an opposing perspective of the world or of something else, I now have compassion. I say, yes, we're both right. Yes, and, Mm -hmm. you know, yes, and. And that's really, that was the beauty of the whole journey is that. Not only did I heal the past traumas, but I healed the traumas that were absolutely necessary for me to get to where I am that occurred, you know, in, in right around that time when I was creating that first training and I was starting the company, there were some significant traumas that could have totally set me back and, you know, really impacted my life. But these tools really saved they really allowed me to integrate those traumas, which created more strength and integrity within my my personality and and the work that I was putting out
1: That's incredible. I don't know how to follow that up, but that's amazing well it, it sounds like you are perfect for this podcast because it sounds like A foundation is so much curiosity, right? Like being curious about your experience, being curious about how to heal through it and move through it, how to incorporate all these different teachings, you know, learn someone else's perspective, learn what's beyond the limiting beliefs. And I just think that's incredible. Um, And so when you started on that journey to like the University of Santa Monica, were you already practicing yoga prior to that? Were you teaching yoga? Kind of how did that break down for you?
2: Yeah. So I started practicing yoga like, probably about 20 years ago, but I didn't start teaching yoga. I have been teaching for almost 20 years, but I didn't start teaching yoga until about 10 years ago. And so that was around the time that I was trained with my teacher originally. And I even started teaching yoga before I was actually certified, which a lot (laughs) of people do, you know. But during that time, I had like a very... Limited view of what yoga was, you know. I had been practicing mindfulness for decades, Mm -hmm. and I had been meditating since I was like nine years old. So I had a a foundation of like mindfulness and like meditation and like observation without judgment. Like I was really down with that, but the physical asana had intimidated me a little bit. I had used it early on, you know, to sort of like resort of calibrate my body after I had my first child. And he's about to turn or he's about to turn 19. So I mean, it's been a long time. But I didn't start really getting into it and putting the pieces together until about 10 years ago. And that's when everything to get came together. I was like, Oh, all this mindfulness stuff is really part of yoga. And, oh, you know, the yoga sutras, they explain the mental fluctuations. You know, I thought everything in my mind was like, you know, this ball of yarn with a thousand different colors. And one argument would be one ball of yarn. And how do you even like untangle all of the perceptions and the verbalization and the delusion in one disagreement or one upset? But when I, you know, started studying the sutras, I really 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 took to the first sutra is uh, samadhi pada the first pada of the book is samadhi pada and in samadhi pada patanjali is talking about like what your mind is and he basically says you know universal consciousness is like a flat line like there's no fluctuation because it holds for everything right you know so if we think of god or we think of universal consciousness or we think of you know brahman or atman it's not animated the same way we are because it literally is everything, right? So there is, it's almost like can't be any fluctuation because it is all the things, right? And so the individual consciousness is where we get all of that fluctuation and it's based on our karma. And so Patanjali makes it super simple. I wish they would teach this in kindergarten. There are five different mental fluctuations. There's truth, perception, verbalization, memory, and sleep. And that's it. And the only thing that's true is you are a divine being in the human experience. Everything else is somebody's perception or somebody's story about it. And memories are just an amalgam of all of these things. And sleep is like narodaha. That is is awareness in which everything is arising. That is the flat line. And so when we recognize that truth is, you know, real and tangible, and that Narodaha is the holding. That's the, the sort of container of the arising of all of these different fluctuations. Then I can basically recognize perception and verbalization. And then I can identify, well, what did they activate in me? Did they activate ignorance, ego? Did they activate my attachment, my aversion, or my fear? And ultimately, you can translate those things to less than lacking, flawed, disconnected, Bound by time or space, those those actually correspond to the insecurities that we have within us. And so all you have to do is identify: well, what is true, what's a perception, and what's a story. Then it's fantastic because you can have, you know, two different personal truths, one universal truth. Nobody has to be wrong, but then we can like see, we can have compassion, we can have empathy for the other. And if we're willing to take the time to work on the insecurity that is preventing us from being connected, then we can eradicate separation, which ultimately eradicates suffering.
1: Wow. I could listen to you talk about this all day. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But I have like kind of a random question. How do you think we got here as humans? Like, how do you think we're suffering so greatly as like modern humans, especially in America right now? I think- everything, I don't know, this is my catastrophic brain, obviously, thinking in my storytelling, but it just seems like everything's falling apart. And we're so disconnected, especially with technology. Like, how do you think we ended up here?
2: I believe that it's projection. So every human is born in this enlightened state of being. And they are like little tiny little sponges, you know, and when you have children of your own, or you're around children, like especially newborns, you'll see it. They're, they're literally just, they're just blank slates. And then we project immediately, we project on them. You know, we put them in pink or we put them in blue. We, or we say, no, I'm not going to put you in any colors and I'm going to let you, and that still is projection in and of itself. You know, it's like, we can't help it, right? We are projecting what we think is best onto these little, these little canvases. And I think that that's really where we went wrong in terms of society. I think that, and it goes back to the traditionalist, it goes back to World War II. You know, the traditionalist came out of that experience and out of the depression. And they were told in order to be successful and to be able to support yourself and not to be like in a gutter someplace, like quite literally in a gutter. I mean, the depression was horrific you know, for even well off people, it was very, very, very challenging. And so they really programmed these individuals, these children, that in order for you to be successful, you have to either join the military, or you have to go to college, and really, you should go to college, even if you join the military, and then you have to get married, and then you have to have two children, and then you have to have a house, and you have to make sure the house is paid off before you're hit retirement, and then you have to have retirement, and then you have to, I mean, it's like all of these. Have to shoulds right? It's all projection. Oh, and you can't be anything but this religion, and you can't love anybody but the opposite sex, and you can't all of these things, and it's all based on fear. Because what if somebody is different? How is that going to challenge my perception of the world? Well, it's a misunderstanding, you know, because ultimately it doesn't need to challenge our our perception of the world. We should be able to be free. To, to be authentic in our own self. So projection, projection, projection equals trauma. What is the definition of trauma? The definition of trauma is a separation from your authenticity and a separation from trusting yourself. When you are not able to be authentic in your own lived experience, and you, now you don't trust yourself because your authenticity is being threatened, now that's trauma. And that's where we're all sitting. And you know, it's trauma is not so much, oh, I, I was raised in an abusive house, or my father was an alcoholic. It's how that experience separated you from your authenticity and your ability to trust your environment and yourself. And that is really what people are having such a hard time accessing, which is why we're disconnected, which is why we don't feel like we're whole. but the the thing is we are whole, and we are always connected. And in fact, you know, it's funny, My teacher, I love her so much, but she doesn't talk to me. And I, I finally got, you know, the healing really was solidified with me when I was like, guess what? It doesn't matter because I am awareness in which everything is arising. And so are you. And we're never separate. We can perceive ourselves to be separate, but the truth of the matter is our wholeness in this experience is not separate and can't be. So I think that the ultimate reason that we are here now is because of our desire to project and control. And that the undercurrent of that is fear. And the undercurrent of that is love. And so you may be like, how is love under fear? Because I love this experience so much, I don't want to let it go. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, under everything is love.
1: I love that. Thank you. (laughs) I really
2: wish that they would be teaching a lot of these like foundational things about, you know, like even even our relationship and upset in relationship, I wish they would teach it to children because if they would start teaching that to children, we would change this in about a hundred years. It would be totally different if children had the tools of mindfulness and then they recognized, oh, Timmy just told me that I was dumb. Well, it's not because I'm really dumb and it's not because I did anything to Timmy. It's because Timmy's insecurity was activated. So Timmy reacted to me, which now has activated my insecurity. So like, if we could teach that to kids, we would have no war.
1: We would have no problems. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, and I love your definition of trauma because the incorporation of the word authenticity into that is it makes so much sense. And like, as a trained therapist, I've never heard it like defined that way. So I appreciate that being in there too. And you're totally right. I think yeah. it, it starts from children. But as you explained, you know, projection from parents onto children, projection from those hurt children onto other children, it's just like this vicious cycle that we just keep expecting to work out. And it's not right now.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking, too, like as you were talking about projection, like obviously, you know, we always think or I should say I always think about projection like from parents or grandparents from friends. But I also think social media comes into play nowadays like because you're taking what you're seeing on social media and then now you're projecting it onto yourself and and social media i mean we all know that it's in a million different directions you're seeing so many different things every single day and how can you possibly keep up or ever find your authenticity in the midst of that i think it's just overload almost
2: yes well and it's so interesting because it ends up you know really inadvertently, and it's so funny because some people know when they're projecting and some people don't, you know, but ultimately it creates a psychic connection between people that they don't even realize. And so like, you know, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, all of these things, like you start to notice that, especially if you're connected with somebody in like the real world, and then you're connected with them on social media, the more you engage in that plane of ether, the more you guys start picking up on each other outside of, you know, a physical connection or like, you know, a digital connection. And it's really interesting to me how that all works. Um, yeah. It is
1: interesting. And so I kind of want to pivot a little bit and hear about how Ayurveda comes into this because I think you can practice that and, and for those that don't know what it is, kind of start there and, and how did you get into that as well.
2: Yeah. You know, Ayurveda is sort of the sister science to yoga and it's a lifestyle. And I practice parts of Ayurveda and then some parts I don't practice because, you know, it's, if you go down the rabbit hole, I mean, you can really encompass every part of your life can be touched by Ayurveda. But the principles of Ayurveda basically say that all disease starts in the mind. And so this is my, the primary practice that I practice is Yana yoga. And it is a lot of psychological yoga. And so even with Ayurveda, the way Ayurveda comes into my life the most is through those practices. But, you know, the idea is you want to make sure that you're clean of any sort of residue. So mind, body, spirit, right? So we digest everything that comes in through our senses. That's all prana right? Ayurveda says, you know, you're going to digest some of that, but then there's some of it that's going to be undigested. You need to get rid of that, you know, so there are cleansing practices, you know, tongue scraping, a lot of people do a lot of Ayurveda things and don't know it, but little things to help with, you know, just maintaining homeostasis in the body. Like, you know, Ayurveda recommends not drinking cold beverages because it dampens like the internal fire. So with a lot of You know, different individuals, they tend to be more sort of composed of air and ether. That's actually a dosha. And in Ayurveda, there are three doshas that sort of describe our manifestation. And people who have that air and ether combination, if they drink cold liquids, you know, it can really, really mess up their digestion. And I've seen it so many times. So, I try to drink, you know, liquids that are room temperature or warm, you know, I try to limit caffeine intake, you know, to one cup a day, you know, stuff like that. I I don't combine certain foods because, and that was, that was mind blowing. Actually, I used to love smoothies, right? We all love smoothies, right? Ayurveda smoothies are no bueno. Like you do not do smoothies. And it's because you don't mix fruit and vegetables and you never mix banana with anything. Because banana will sour the stomach. It'll, if it's mixed with anything, it will, it will like ferment. And so I would get in smoothies and then I'd get sick to my stomach. And I was like, why am I getting sick to my stomach? Well, because this fermented banana is sitting there, like just creating gas in my stomach. So it's like, you know, those little things do make such a difference. Abanyanga is an Ayurvedic practice. It's a practice of self-massage. And that was one of the, again, my teacher shared that with me. That was one of the most like transformative practices that I incorporated because it forced me to look at myself through the lens of non judgment. And I was working in eating re- recovery at the time. I was uh, a yoga therapist for a clinic out here in Austin. And I remember just like being in that place. And Abhinyanga, you, you basically are, you're putting oil on the body. It's like a self-massage and it's always back towards the heart. And it's like a whole body massage. And so I'm sitting there and I'm naked on the floor with a candle burning and I'm like putting this oil on my body and I'm thinking to myself, God doesn't judge me. And I just, tears just came running down my face. It was such a huge, it was such a huge epiphany that that was like the, the impetus of my healing journey when it came to my own body, you know, because I had struggled with, you know, disordered eating and stuff like that. Most women do. Most men do, too. So it was it was such a huge like weight lifted off me when I was like, wait a second, you know, and then I went further with it. And I remember I was teaching in a teacher training one day and I proclaimed to everyone. I was like, I have nothing. I have no problem with my butt. It's like that was my grandmother's material. That's what she projected onto me, but it wasn't my issue. I don't have it. I don't care, you know. So it was just so wonderful to start to undo that doing. And ayurveda was a big part of that, you know, because it softens everything a little bit. It takes the bite out of things, you know, quite literally with the food or with the practices that you're doing. It
1: literally lubricates the experience. Mm. That's incredible. And it sounds like a lot of reclaiming of who you are, who your body is, and your love for yourself in ways that feel gentle, not like so intense, kind of like you described traditional therapy earlier of like, you have to process and talk about it and talk about the traumas over and over again. And it's instead, it's like, these small, gentle rituals that you get to incorporate throughout your day to kind of bring you back to that homeostasis very interesting about the bananas. I did not know because I love bananas in my smoothies. So now I know not to do it. But also my fiance makes fun of my tongue scraper. So I'll have to get him on himself and be like, listen, we got to start doing this. Yes, absolutely.
0: I know. And I feel vindicated. I hate cold beverages and everybody makes fun of me. And I just don't, I have sensitive teeth. So that's why I don't like it. But now I'm going to look more into that and use that as the basis for my argument. We're learning so much. This is so wonderful. (laughs) I know. I appreciate this.
1: So when, when you kind of have worked in different treatment centers and with different clients and stuff, do you pull in from like yoga and mindfulness and Ayurveda? Like, do you have a certain process or do you just kind of utilize your intuition to pull in what that person needs?
2: Well, we do a lot of group work. And so in group work, you, and it depends on where you're working. In cardiac, I would have more one-on-ones just because of the nature of the, the rehabilitation process there. But a lot of it is a lot of yoga nidra, a lot of restorative, a lot of yin. You know, I will use Patanjali's Yoga Sutras as like psych education. So I, I teach it and I, I teach them. I'm like, look, you, because it can be so overwhelming, you know, like you're in therapy, you're in a, you know, an IOP, which is intensive outpatient therapy, right? You're there from seven in the morning until six o'clock at night. You're eating all three meals with these people, you know, and they just want you to talk about things all the time. Well, you know, sometimes it's so overwhelming because you don't know, well, what is an emotion? What is a thought? What is a sensation? Blah, 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 blah. But, you know, you get the sutras in there and I don't tell them it's the sutras. but then, you know, I start drawing on the whiteboard and they're all like, really? Like, that's it? I'm like, yeah, that's it. Like, there's nothing else to it, you know? And then that makes it, it like lightens it a little bit. So I think now I'm not working as much in clinical settings since COVID, although we do have contracts with treatment facilities uh, here in Texas but we mostly send out newer yoga therapists for those uh, projects. I'm doing a lot more like yoga therapy, like hybrid offerings right now, where we are, you know, really drilling down on certain issues. Like I did one for healing ancestral trauma. That was unbelievable. I did one for cultivating intimacy. So these, these sort of opportunities for us to come together as a group of like consenting adults, and, you know, learn different strategies and and learn a little bit about like, maybe why there's a disconnect, or why there's aversion, you know, to this particular experience, or to this particular belief system. It really, really helps people. And then it creates like that connection, that community. So you can't do that as much in IOP, because they, they don't want to be there in the first place. And they're not, you know, like, they're not really willing participants. They're like, I'm here because I have to be. (laughs) So it's a lot easier, I find, to work with people who
1: really want to be there and really have a goal in mind. Mm, That's awesome. And you have quite a few offerings with my vinyasa practice, right? So I know that you train yoga therapists, but kind of break down what you're offering and also how how did this come out of your head? Like, how did you create all of these amazing things And and what's the company looking like? Give us all the downloads. <laughs>
0: Yeah.
2: So, you know, I started with the 200 hour. And like I said, that was that was actually caused a lot of drama. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't understand. I mean, I do understand why, but I don't Mm -hmm. understand why I had a master's in curriculum development. And I had been sitting with my teacher for, you know, gosh, two years. And she offered a yoga teacher training. And I said, Oh, okay, if I take these two yoga teacher trainings, I'll be able to write trainings. And she was like, yeah, but like, she totally, like, I don't think she processed that I am a curriculum developer and I want, you know, to do this in a bigger scale. So continue on, continue on. After I, I finished that program, I spent an intense amount of time with her and like mentoring and and observing and all the things. And I had so much love for her that I didn't want to compete with her. So I went to her and I said, let's do this, tr- let's do this program for teachers, Let's create something for educators. So they're not projecting their BS onto our kids. Mm. I thought it was brilliant. I, so. I thought it was, <laughs> honestly, I still think it's it brilliant, <laughs> but I was in the minority. And so she she kept really not, well, I mean, I could feel it. I could feel it was not sitting well with her. And I was just like, come on, you know, I can write it. I can put it online. It was always my desire to put it online because then I could scale it across school systems. And that was what I really wanted to do. I started. uh, (laughs) I didn't ask permission. I just started doing it. And that ultimately created such a rift between the two of us that that I said things I shouldn't have said, basically, that really burned a bridge. And I'll take responsibility for that. And I was already down the rabbit hole. We were already going. And Breath for Change was seeing all my advertisements. And so they decided to launch a training in Austin. Pissed me Mm -hmm. off. I got to be honest with you because their training was not the same training. It was to train educators to teach yoga in the classroom. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to train educators on the philosophy of yoga so that they could model that philosophy Mm -hmm. for children and not project their BS onto our kids and then teach the kids how to use mindfulness to work through... their their relationships. Okay. So at this point, I'm feeling so downtrodden because my my teacher and I are no longer talking. I lost community out of it. You know, when things like that happen, it's sort of like a bad divorce. Mm -hmm. You know, we had all been together for a long time and now there's a separation, you know, who goes with who, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it was just a shitty time. It was just shitty. And so I decided I put myself to bed for about six months, actually. I did yoga nidra for about two hours every day for six months. And I just like, I literally put everything on hold. I didn't pay bills unless they were necessities. I didn't pay like petty credit card. I did. I literally, I said, I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to sit here until I get some clarity. And then finally I was like, well, damn it. You love doing what you're doing. You love teaching this stuff. So go teach it. Don't compete with breath for change. You can't Compete with that because they were already in school systems, and I, I really needed, I need, I, I felt like I needed my teacher to do that. Like that was, that was sort of the, the fuel behind my fire, you know. And so I said, okay, well, we'll just offer it to people. We'll see who wants it. Well, we started offering it online, and it was before online was legitimized, you know, like people weren't doing it online, but people still wanted to take it, which I was shocked about. And so they, you know, registered, and we got. You know, the first year was, you know, I started hiring people and then the next year we hired more people and then we downsized a little bit and then we upsized a little bit and then COVID hit and I had no idea. I (laughs) had no idea. And and because we only had, we had the 200 and we had the 300 hour on and they, I mean, they were great. The content was great, but the videos were horrible. And it was all in my garage and like, we had no professional equipment. And it was just like, it was, you know, we were flying by the seat of our pants. I say we, I was flying by the seat of my pants. And so then COVID hit and I was like, holy shit. I remember waking up one morning and I mean, I'll just tell, I'll just say it. I woke up one morning to $25,000 of sales. And I was like, what the oh, hell just happened? Oh my goodness. believe it. It was crazy. And so it just built so much momentum. Now, the beauty of it was I was at a place, thank God, where I was receptive to criticism. Because, <laughs> we're going, And I started having all these people in my trainings. You know, people were like, um, you misspoke here. And you. I, mean, I was finding stuff all over the place. Well, we just, I, I said, Michelle, it's not about you. Understand that this has activated their insecurity about their perfectionism. Just go fix it, right? So that's what I did. I just went in and fixed everything. And so then people were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I'm like, okay, I fixed everything, but now we need to re-record it. So we re-recorded it and we kept adding and then we re-recorded it again and we kept adding. And now we have the 200, the 300, 500, yoga therapy. All of those from the 300 hour are CEUs. So trauma-informed, yoga nidra, restorative, yin, adaptive, prenatal, business of yoga, trauma-informed. And then we have mindfulness coaching, we have meditation certification, we have entrepreneurship, we have pranayama, we have Ayurvedic nutrition, we have a self-coaching course, and then a, a bunch of little yoga therapy courses, like yoga therapy for depression, for anxiety, for grief. And those are great because they're little bite-sized things, but you can just keep doing those practices over and over and over again. And it's like you're working with a little yoga therapist. It's really, it's really sort of cool. So yeah, that's how it, that's how it started. And then this is where we are. And we're actually about to move to a new LMS that is a collegiate LMS. So, you know, everybody right now is on teachable, but that has a lot of limitations. Teachable, Kajabi, stuff like that. These are like baby LMSs. They don't have the capacity to like interact with the students or create community that are, is like a college, like level sort of curriculum. So we're moving to a, an academic curriculum platform and that will enable us to have cohorts and then the teachers will be able to like communicate directly through the platform. They won't have to send emails out and then people, oh, it got lost in my junk folder or whatever, it's like right there. There's a lot of like grading stuff built in. We already have an app. So we have a, an online studio app, but it'll give us a second app that will be for the school. So I'm super excited about it. I mean, I just love creating things. I love teaching and I love creating things. And I'm a, I am a curriculum developer. So once I, I have that content knowledge, I just go through and create curriculum. And, you know, people will be like, well, why is it so affordable? Why is it so inexpensive? And I'm like, because this is wisdom teaching. Nobody should be paying for this. What people pay for when they come to my vinyasa practice, they pay for peer support. They pay for one on ones with me as many times as they want they pay for lead trainer support. We don't charge for those things. We don't charge extra. So you're paying $500 for a yoga teacher training, but you're not paying for any of the content because I am not going to charge anybody for the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. They're not mine. You know, I'm going to charge you for, you know, answering your emails, for getting on a Zoom, for, you know, grading your homework, for giving you feedback on your sequences for reviewing your videos that's what, where the the value comes in and i think that's what makes us different because we it's definitely not a passive thing for us i mean we employ we employ about 20 people right now and like it's it's a it's really amazing it's really amazing
1: that's incredible I, and i appreciate that so much because I was certified with my 200 hour a couple of years ago and I thought it was expensive then. But then I look at some of the trainings now and I'm like, holy cow, like five, ten thousand $10,000. Same with like breathwork trainings too, like $12,000. I'm like, what is going on? So I, that it's just incredible.
2: Well, and one of the things that, well, and this is my material, I'll just preface it with that. Everything I teach, I have to substantiate with science. So like I did the pranayama training. I mean, it's not very expensive. It's like 400 bucks. We put it on sale for $100 all the time. But I talk like specifically about like brahmana and lunga, are principles of like increasing and, and decreasing in Ayurveda. And you can apply them to anything like energy, right? And so when you are, you know, like when you are focusing on an inhalation, on spinal extension it activates certain plexuses within the nervous system that activate your sympathetic nervous system, okay? So when we are inhaling on spinal flexion, we activate the parasympathetic nervous system because of the way that we are like contracting the body, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense, and the emphasis on the exhale versus the inhale. So I teach people the why about it, and then let them make their decision on whether or not this fad breath work over here is actually legit or not. Because a lot of this stuff that is people are charging $12,000 for has no basis in scientific like research and there's no why to it. Oh, I'm going to get high for a little bit. Well, why? You know, what is that doing for you? Oh, it's going to help you with resilience training, but why? You know, so I, I was fortunate enough to be trained by Richard Miller in pranayama. And he is a psychotherapist. So that gave me a lot of the why, you know, and then I was able to go back in and look at these other breathwork practices and be like, well, actually, if you're doing this, you are creating a hyper aroused state where you are almost like inducing, you know, these skewed memories or these skewed experiences that you might perceive as traumatic experiences, you might perceive that you're letting go or releasing trauma, but you're actually creating something within the mind because of the way that you are, you know, creating a hypoxic environment in the brain. And we talk a little bit about neurotransmitters too, like hypoxic breathing versus hyperoxic breathing, like what neurotransmitters are, are like, thrive in an oxygen rich environment versus what neurotransmitters thrive in like an oxygen depleted environment. And it's super interesting that like too much oxygen can increase your serotonin to the point where either you feel high or you feel anxious even, you know, because you go beyond that point of diminishing marginal returns. So I think it's fascinating. I love what we do. And I love making it affordable. And I know that some people think that, oh, well, that must diminish the quality, but I guarantee you it doesn't. It's, it's just, we don't have any gimmick and we don't have any ego in it. So it's like, you know, we're just giving it to people straight.
0: Yeah. And I know I signed up for the 200 hour years ago, probably right when COVID started. And I was like, you know, sitting at home, like, all right, I want to dive more into yoga. And it was so affordable. It was such an easy decision for me to be like, yeah, why a few hundred dollars. And what I've loved is like, it's been years and I still haven't finished it, but it's because like, it's was so affordable, like that. I feel comfortable, like taking the time to like, do a lesson and then take a month to integrate it. I'm not like trying to fly through it because I'm like, oh my God, I spent $10,000 on it. I need to finish it. So I feel like that also for me has been so helpful that I don't feel any rush to get through it, you know, and feel like, oh my God, I need to get the ROI on this investment in myself. It's like, I can really like take the time to learn it, integrate it and use it. Yes, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And I think it just makes it like we've talked about, but so accessible for so many different people who maybe don't have a training that they feel called to locally or can afford locally or, you know, people who can't even leave their houses for whatever reasons, right? Like they can log in and be able to take, whether it's a yoga training, the pranayama training, Ayurveda, like whatever it is that they're wanting to learn more And I just so appreciate the science backing of it because I think a lot of the times too, when I see these courses, it just feels unauthentic, right? And just kind of like, where is this coming from? And I think you honoring, like, these aren't my teachings, like ethically speaking, that is, yeah, very profound, especially in the world that we're living in, especially as Americans, because I think we have done so much damage when it comes to that. So you- Creating the cost based on just the energy that you need to kind of exert and get back is a beautiful thing.
2: Yeah, we love what we do.
1: Yeah, it definitely sure. shows. I love it. So on that note too, like within the yoga industry, I feel like it's shifted quite a bit over the past few years. But where do you feel like we're at right now, and and what direction do you feel like we're going in?
2: I feel like yoga is still on the fringe. It's still not quite where it needs to be to be considered mainstream, even like your thrift savings that you use, or or I guess the the money that you can use for like medical expenses and stuff like that, you know, non-tax money, they're still not allowing people to use it for yoga, you know, but you can use it for a chiropractor. So it's very interesting to me that, you know, we haven't made more headway, but I think that the reason we haven't made more headway is because for a long time, yoga was very, very close to like the dance world, like the the dance movement world. And in fact, on our podcast, I've had five guests over the last like two weeks that I've been batching, I've been recording and um, Leslie Kaminoff was one of them. You know, Lori Nemitz was one of them. Every single one of them came from a dance background. Every single one of them. But you think about it and you think about like, oh my gosh, there's been so much trauma in the dance world. You know, like how many little girls start dance and then don't progress, don't move forward. There's a host of reasons, you know, there's a lot of abuse in the dance world. There's a lot of neglect in the dance world. And so I think that if you've had that experience, then walking into a yoga studio with you know, like a bunch of people who you, even if they don't look the way you perceive that they're going to look in your mind, you're thinking Instagram yogis, you're thinking, you know, life, you know, people who are walking around floating on a cloud. It's just not it's not as appealing. But over the last five years, I think we really have done an excellent job at, you know, creating more accessible yoga options. So what we're seeing is we're starting to see yoga come into more mainstream. You know, five years ago, people tried to get yoga in schools and everybody's like, no, especially if you're in the Bible Belt. But now schools are a little bit more receptive. They're like, okay, well, maybe, you know, like, maybe we don't call it yoga. Maybe we call it stretching, you know, because they don't want out, you know, p- parents to be upset. But still, I think that it's, it's starting to go that way. For any major change to occur, you need about 100 years. So it's going to take about 100 years from, let's say, the start of like yoga really proliferating, you know, society for it to be more mainstream. So that was like in the 1940s, right? So, you know, Indra Devi, I believe like somewhere in 1930s, 1940s, maybe I might be off by a decade, she started the first yoga studio out in California. So, we're almost there to a place where I would consider it to be more mainstream. I think in 20 years, 15-20 years, you'll start to see insurance giving, you know, like reimbursements for it. You'll probably start seeing, you know, some some integrated options. People will be more likely to take a yoga class. But I will tell you this. We were looking at sponsoring Austin FC, which is the soccer team here in, in Austin. It's a soccer stadium. And we were, we were looking at sponsoring them and they gave us basically an ROI breakdown. And if we were a fitness brand, we would get, you know, like about 25 to 30% higher return than we, we would if we are a yoga brand. So, you know, there are some yoga companies that brand themselves more as fitness yoga and they would have a better chance at returning on that investment than we are because we're so accessible, affordable, spiritually based that, you know, it's it's still a little fringe for people. So, I think I'm hoping that we continue to move forward with more accessibility with, you know, creating more images and assets that represent all different body types, all different sexualities, all different, you know, like age groups, like, you know, people have to realize diversifying our image is not just about, you know, color. It's not just about, you know, age. It's not just about, you know, gender. It's all of it, right? It's ability. It's everything. We really have to do some work to create that inclusion, and then I think the more inclusion we create, the more it will proliferate. But those companies that are not on the bandwagon for inclusion and diversifying their content are going to be left behind, I think, in the long run. You know, so it's like some companies, some of the leisure wear companies and stuff, they're trying to, but they're still so hyper focused on is this representation of diversity beautiful? Is this representation of diversity aspirational. And as a marketer, I mean, that was my undergrad was marketing and I worked on the McDonald's account. Oh, wow. So as a marketer, I'm telling you, you know, stop thinking about aspirational in those ways, because I think our psychology is changing. People would rather, in fact, I ran an ad a couple of years ago with the student had Down syndrome. The teacher was like helping the student. That ad did better than any ad I've ever run, ever. I had mothers commenting, thanking me for running that ad. I can't tell you the outpour of support, but most advertisers would stay away from it because they're like, it's not aspirational. Nobody wants to see that. No, people want to see that. People are ready. They're ready to embrace like the whole of the human experience.
1: Very well said. Again, another like mic drop from our conversation today. So I appreciate that. And yeah, I I think both Chelsea and I agree, especially because we're both ex dancers and and knowing the amount of trauma that I went through, you know, that was part of the reason I sought yoga. And one of the first classes I took that really got me into it was with a bunch of middle-aged to elderly women, right off of like, Our college's campus, and it was the most comfortable I felt. Like it helped me recover from so many different things, and it doesn't have to be like I'm just going to throw a brand out there, but like the Lululemon yoga ad about like having a yoga practice on the beach in like a bikini, you know. So it 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 is so much more, and I think when we're able to really break that open again, it, it breaks down that human experience that we're all experiencing. It's a beautiful thing. Absolutely, absolutely. On that note, is there any like last things? Where can people find you? Any last notes that you want to share?
2: Yes, absolutely. People can find us at myvinyasapractice.com. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook as well. We're on Pinterest. And we offer just a host of different things from our app, which is $9 a month, all the way up to our yoga therapy training and everything in between. We also run retreats all year round. I'm about to go to Ireland next month and, uh, we've got a Seattle retreat coming up in two weeks. So, you know, definitely, definitely lots of ways to plug in with our community. We have about 55,000 students right now and, uh, and we're just growing and, uh, enjoying
1: the ride. Awesome. That's incredible. That's amazing. We'll link everything below, but thank you seriously from the bottom of our hearts. This has been so special and we appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was so fun. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to rate and subscribe. And we love connecting with you all over on Instagram at the moon in your mind. Send us a DM and let us know what you think. Sending love to you all.